You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Good morning. Woo. Great to have all the kids and the youth in the house. Love you guys. We are so glad that you're a part of us this morning. You're always a part of us, but we're so glad that you're with us this morning. Listen, last week we started a brand new series called Reset, and Pastor Keith talked about boundaries. And it's interesting in this Reset series, this is not something you do once. This is something you need to maintain in your life. And so we had the opportunity to possibly reset some of our boundaries last week as we looked at uh, one church that was free to do anything, another church that was legalistic, and we saw that neither of them were actually the right conclusion. And so that's a great teaching. If you missed it, you can go online and see it. Uh, Last week's teaching on resetting boundaries. Today, I want to talk to you about resetting margin. Now, what is margin? Dr. Richard Swenson calls margin this. Margin is the space. It's the gap. It's the pause between our load and our limits. In other words, everyone that came into this room today, I'm looking around this room right now, regardless of your age, we all carry a load. We carry an emotional load. We carry an emotional load that's shaped by maybe things at work and pressures and deadlines that we experience both real and perceived. We carry a load over family issues. I mean, we, we, might, we love our family, but there's a, there's a weightiness to parenting. There's a weightiness to interacting with a spouse, all of that stuff. It's a, it's a load that we do carry. And some of us are in that, uh, they call it the sandwich generation, and we're caring for older aging parents as well as trying to launch children. And you carry extra loads in those moments. Some of us carry physical loads. And it's difficult to come out. Some of us carry not just emotional loads, but as Pastor uh, Richard had mentioned, even in praying, carrying some mental loads as we journey through life. This is true of all of us. Every one of us is carrying a load, a weight that we carry. Now, here's the interesting thing. is Margin is that space between the load that we're presently carrying and our limit. Because every one of us has a limit. That's really hard for any of you type A leaders to hear this morning. Everyone has a limit. Can we all say this together? I have limits. You ready? One, two, three. I have limits. That's therapeutic. Some of you just needed to say that. You have limits. There's only so much you can carry before something bad happens. And that's the space between load and limits. Here's the problem in our culture. Dr. Swenson mentions it, but we can see it. The margin between the load we carry and our limit has been shrinking. And it's been shrinking to such a degree that sometimes we feel like we're constantly living our lives on the edge. And when we live that way, we lose peace, we can't rest. We cannot hear God properly. It's very difficult to be available to God because we have no margin. Can you relate to having an overstacked, over-demanding agenda? Can you relate to the fact that everything has become an emergency in our culture? Everything is urgent. Everything is urgent. Everything is pressing. Everything is now. Now. And yet, I love what she said, we are actually too busy 
to become less busy. And it is ironic. How do we navigate this? She asked this question, I think it's a fantastic question, what is the cost of worshiping the false god of busyness? Now, for some of us in this room, maybe you're new and you're thinking, well, false god, like how is busyness a god? Listen, what she's doing is drawing from scripture and the Bible talks about false gods or idols. And we think of little statues, we think of gods from an ancient culture with a name. In our modern vernacular and culture, a a false god in the Bible was principally anything, even a good thing, anything that has control over us other than God. Anything that takes precedence over God in our relationship is an idol. Even good things, even really good things. Like power. Power is not an evil thing. I know we see it used and we see it in culture and society and politicians and we think uh, power is ugly. Power can serve people. Power can lift people out of systemic poverty, all kinds of things. That's why we pray for those in authority and power because we want them to use it for good, not for selfishness. So power is a good thing. But people who seek power, they're controlled by power. People who seek power actually come under control of power, and false gods control us. It's like acceptance. Who doesn't want to be accepted? That's a good thing. But people who are seeking and striving for acceptance over everything are being controlled by the very people that they seek to receive acceptance from. It's like significance. People who seek significance, and they principally find significance in their children, in a a spouse, in a relationship, or in their career path, whatever it is that they are seeking to fill that void of significance in their life actually controls them in this life. You you see it all the time, don't you? I mean, other families, not yours. But have have you ever been around a family where the children called all the shots? Mm -hmm. Why? Well, because you find such significance in your children, you can't afford to say no to little Johnny because little Johnny might not love you. (laughs) Or on the inverse of it, you'll see families that are demanding of their children that's to such a degree and controlling and you've got to do this and pushing and pushing. And why are they doing it? Because they find their significance in their children. And so they need to be a success so that I am a successful parent. And all of these things begin to control us. And here's how false gods control us in our life. Whatever our issue might be, it controls us through fear. Not fear like I'm scared of it. Fear like if I don't keep up this pace, if I don't keep appearances up, if I don't keep this demanding schedule, I might lose significance. I might lose power. I might lose acceptance. Fear drives us to crowd already overcrowded schedules with more things than we can afford to actually do, and our limit and load ratio gets so close, we run that if anything goes wrong, we're over the edge. Uh, Maybe that's not you, though. I don't know. Sometimes we tend to overcrowd our schedules because we lack the ability to say no. You know, depending on your personality, I love people, so saying no to people is really hard. It's like when someone, when you already have an overtaxed schedule and someone calls and said, hey, you want to come over tonight? And you can't say no. 
And so you go and you kind of resent them for another social obligation now you have and you kind of resent them and it wasn't their fault at all. It's just you lack the ability to say no. For some of us, it's the fear of falling behind in life and it's very profound because maybe at some points in life, our parents or those before us, they found themselves behind before. So you're always racing ahead to try to stay ahead. And it's fear that drives you to overcrowd your schedules. It's fear that drives you to lose margin because you're always afraid. Hey, Jonathan, you don't understand. You don't understand my schedule. You don't know the demands. I wish you could come and see what my day looks like. I can't stop. And it's fear. For some of us, and this was a big part, self-confession, big part of my life, is the fear of living a life that didn't matter. And so you get driven to make sure that your life matters. And so you can't slow down. And the irony in it, it's so ironic that our fear of not mattering can cause us to miss the things that really matter. Our fear of not wanting to miss out can cause us to actually miss out on the things that really matter in life. In fact, every time we live with no margin in our life, and we live right at our limits, what we're doing is we're trading our peace for progress. And then, this is why when we get progress at work or in any quadrant of life, we can't enjoy it because we have no peace. Because we traded it away. We traded it away for progress. See, here's what happens with this shrinking of margin in our lives, where our load actually comes to our limit. Margin is the gap that is necessary. It is the gap between rest and exhaustion. It is the gap between suffocating and breathing freely. So the question is, what's the cost of worshiping a false god of busyness, and are you over your limit? Here's how you can tell. There's three ways you can tell. First off, without margin, if you don't have enough margin in your life, you're going to live with this uh, uh, this underlining feeling of stress as your stress levels begin to grow. You constantly live as if you have deadlines. I, it's funny how this works. It's your day off and you can't truly rest because even your day off is filled with deadlines. Many of them are not even imposed by others. They're self-imposed. You become on edge that you always feel like if I have a moment to rest, I am unproductive. We don't see that as being productive in that we are restoring and allowing God to restore our lives. And so we live in states of stress. There is no rest. We cannot turn our minds off. Am I reading any of your mail? Some of us, though, it's not just stress. It goes a little bit further. We get a bad case of tunnel vision. You know what tunnel vision is? Tunnel vision is when you live your life and you're right on the edge and I'm present with you in this room, and I'm talking to you right now, but I am also thinking about how I'm teetering. And some of you are getting stressed out watching me teeter on the edge of this, because you just saw Pastor Stephanie. And that's what she, no, that wasn't what she was doing. But here's how some of us live our lives. We have no margin in our life, so we're present with people, but we're not really there. We're thinking about the, thing, the underlining stress. Our subconscious is taking us right back to this area where we're on the edge. And you, you know, the problem with tunnel vision, you can't see it, just everybody else around you can. 
It's like when I was, when I was in a really busy season at one point and Shelly's talking to me and she says, you're not listening. And I could tell her exactly what she said. I heard everything. But she was right. I wasn't listening because I was too close to the edge. The inverse of it is when you're out on the edge, you can't pay attention to what matters most. But if you took a couple steps back, you're more relaxed right now. I'm more relaxed right now. And actually, I can be present with you in this room. We can pay attention. The combination of stress levels and tunnel vision does something that really pronounces how little margin we have in life. Your relationships begin to suffer. All of them begin to suffer. Because you get to that edge and that limit, and then all it takes is one more piece of bad news. One bill that you can't pay. One more fight. One person saying the wrong thing one time. One more event. One more family obligation. And boom, you're over the edge. And that's those moments when you, in hindsight, go, what came over me? Or that wasn't me. I lost my uh, uh, patience with my spouse, with someone else. What, what was that about? Well, you're right on the edge. You had no margin. You had no ability to deal with the extra one more thing. The one thing was not the issue. You want to make it about the issue, but it is not the issue. The issue is that you have cumulatively have shrunk the margin over the course of the week, day, month, year, and you have no reserves to deal with whatever challenge might be in front of you. So I want to help you press the reset button. Turn to John chapter 6 if you have your Bible with you. We're going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture. Kids, you're going to know this one. This is the one where a large crowd comes to Jesus and he feeds how many people? Anyone remember? Okay, people need to read the Bible a bit more. He, you read, he feeds 5,000. Now, it says 5,000 men in the passage, and that's because in that male-dominated culture, they counted the men. But theologians would say there was probably about 10,000 people there when you factored in the women and children. So here's the, we're going to pick up the text. starts in verse 1 of John chapter 6. It says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd... Jesus has this fantastic relationships with crowds and it's going to help us understand how to grow margin in our life. I don't know of a culture or a time in history where the crowd was more powerful than it is today. The crowd can come right into my room when I'm by myself and get to me. The crowd has access to us 24-7. And friends, our culture is addicted to the crowd. More followers, more thumbs up, more likes. More people, more, more, more. So the great crowd of people followed him. Why? Because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So let me give you a context here. Jesus is at the apex of his popularity. It's just going to keep growing a little bit more, and it tails off near the end because he starts saying some things that people don't want to hear. They want more of these miracles, but less talk, more, more like magic. That's what they were feeling and experiencing. And in this moment, though, he's at the apex. There are so many demands on his life right now. His travel demands, if you follow the Gospels, you can see the amount of kilometers that man traveled by foot, getting from village to village, town to town, city to city, region to region, the travel time, the, the, the emotional demand. People wouldn't leave him alone. 
They wanted constant access to him. And they weren't people that had it all together. They were people who had great needs and they were desperate and they're constantly trying to get to Jesus. He had amazing emotional demands, incredible spiritual demands on him, great physical demands on him. He's a man in this portion of scripture that's stretched. Now what's interesting in Jesus' relationships with the crowd is this. Jesus never sought the crowd, but the crowd sought Jesus. This is really important. Jesus never sought the crowd, but the crowd sought Jesus. If Jesus had been seeking the crowd, he would be controlled by the crowd. He couldn't take a break. He wouldn't be able to have any margin. Why? Because the crowd never gives you a break. It demands more and more. Oh, you healed this person yesterday. More today, please. Next. That was last week. Next. And so... Because he never sought the crowd and the crowd sought him, he was able to keep things ordered in his mind and life. Be careful what you seek, friends. This is why Jesus would say, seek me first. Don't seek career success first. Don't seek significance in your children, your family, your spouse. Don't don't put that kind of pressure on them, but don't seek them, it'll hurt you. Seek me first and my kingdom. And all these other things, they will follow after this. So you can see it in the story of Jesus' relationship with crowds. If you get a chance to read the Gospels, and the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'd encourage you this week, if you've never read them, read them. It's fantastic. Jesus is amazing. Just amazing. I can tell you that. And you read it, and you'll see. But what's interesting in his relationship with the crowds is he's always leaving the crowd. Always leaving the crowd. Always retreating from the crowd. Why? margin. He does it to refuel. He retreats to spend time to those that he's closest to so he can be his best version of himself with those that he's farthest from. It's pretty incredible the way he orders his life. You can see it right at the beginning of his ministry. He, he goes to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. John the Baptist has a great crowd, a great following, and he's baptizing down by the Jordan River. And he looks up. He's probably just baptized someone, and he looks up and he sees Jesus. And he says in a loud voice to that crowd, Behold, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, I am not worthy to untie his sandals. And then Jesus is baptized, and the Father speaks from heaven, and a dove descends. I mean, it is momentum building. I mean, Jesus, if he was seeking the crowd, this is the moment. Capitalize on this. It doesn't get any more incredible than this moment. You've just been ordained the Messiah. The crowd is with you. And where does he go? Into the wilderness for 40 days to pray and connect with the Father. I mean, if he's doing a marketing thing, bad play. But Jesus kept margin in his life, whatever the play was. You can see it over and over. Luke especially records these things. Often says when the crowd started to grow, it says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. What? One of my favorites is when the disciples are looking for him. They can't even find him. 
Everyone's looking for him. Jesus, people need you. People need you. People need you. And I love it when they find them, they say this. And it's in the Greek, it's very emphatic. And they're frustrated and they're exhausted. They've been looking for Jesus. They said, everyone's looking for you. You know, in modern day vernacular, we've been texting you. What's happening? Is your phone off? Does it have an off button? It just goes off when it's dead. You mean you can turn it off? He's unavailable. You know, I, I know in this, I was thinking about it all week. I was thinking about what it was like for me when I was a kid growing up. I didn't have a cell phone. There were no cell phones. I'm that old. Instead, your parents would give you a quarter, and some of you, they gave you a dime, depending on your era, and you called when you got there. Or you had to borrow your friend's phone. You'd go into your friend's house, and you'd say, I got to call home, let mom know I'm here. And, you know, you'd get the rotary dial. And, you know, my phone number had nines in it, which it, I know, wasn't that a pain? I mean, you had to go all the way around to let the nine go. It was just a, a pain to do. And now we're available, and if someone doesn't text us back in five minutes, we're thinking, your thumbs better be broken. In fact, I found this online between a guy and a girl. I loved it. At 7.02 p.m., she texts this guy and says, should I get pizza? And at 7.21, he's still not responding. And she goes to get his attention. Hey, John, my arm just got chopped off by a psycho killer. He doesn't jump in until 7.36 and says, okay, I'm sorry, I'll save you. To which she responds, I already bled to death. That's what happens when you take 30 minutes to reply to a text. People die. Everything's urgent. Everything's immediate. Everything is now in our culture. And what that does is it attacks margin. And it takes away your ability to pause, to think before you respond. It takes away your ability to, to pause, to restore and refuel yourself. You start doing the game of trading progress with peace. So in the story we're reading, Jesus sees this great crowd and he has compassion on them. And he says to his disciples, we should really feed these people. To which the uh, disciple Philip says, Jesus, uh, there's like 10,000 people here. We don't have enough money to feed them. But one of the disciples, Andrew, Andrew started looking in the crowd for somebody to feed him. So Andrew was looking for someone and he found a young boy who had a lunch. And that young boy came right up on stage with me. And he had this lunch with them. Come on over here, Josiah. I mean, he came that day. You came to hear Jesus, right? Yeah, that's right. Come on over. Come on over here. Come on over. He came to hear Jesus teach. And maybe his mom packed him this lunch. Did mom pack you this lunch? We, we don't know, really. I think I packed the lunch for you. But I appreciate you helping me out here. Let's see what's in your lunch. So he got the lunch out, and he gave it to Andrew, who gave it to Jesus, and let's see what's inside of it. Can you help me unpack this? Oh, bread. Bread. Let's get the loaves of bread out, and let's put it right up here. Loaves of bread right here. How many loaves do we have here, Josiah? Can you count them? What do we got? Five. Awesome. Give me a high five. You've got five loaves of bread. Now, 10,000 people. Do you think 10,000 people can... Is this enough for 10,000 people? Yeah. 
I don't know. Maybe your mom can stretch anything. I don't know. I think she has some Italian in her, so she's able to make anything out of anything. Okay, so then he had what? Can you pull this out? He had two fish. Oh, how does that smell? You like it? Yeah, you go ahead and touch it. No, no, put your hand right down the side of it, and then go hug your mom. Go hug hug your mom. Just tell her how much you love her. She's waiting for you. Thanks, Josiah. I'd say high five by your hands, you know. So here's how the story reads. The story reads this way. It says that here's a boy, Andrew says, with five small barley loaves and two small fish. And then I love how Andrew says this, but how far will they go among so many? I mean, he didn't even need to say it. But he's kind of doing this, you know, Jesus, you want some food, here it is. But how far will this go among 10,000 people? And it goes on to say this. Jesus said, and this is really the pivot of the message. Have the people sit down. What? Take a load off. Have them sit down and rest. There was... Can you say this with me? Plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Now, this is an incredible passage of Scripture because it's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but John is the only gospel that mentions the small, seemingly insignificant detail that there was plenty of grass in that place. Plenty of grass, plenty of space, plenty of space. And when we speak of margin in our lives, Jesus had plenty of space to work, and Jesus had plenty of space for a miracle to happen. And friends, here's the confession of a a still recovering workaholic. Is that often in my life, I've moved from event to event, moment to a moment, task to task, at such a frenetic pace, that there was no space for Jesus to work. What a travesty for a follower of Jesus to make no space for him to speak to you. No space for Jesus to do a miraculous thing in my life. Uh, I remember the story of a rabbi saying to one of, his, one of the businessmen in his church that was running at such a frenetic pace that he would often be the last one in and the first one out. And one Saturday after, on the Sabbath, he decided, I'm going to grab him in the lobby. And he ran from up here around the back and got him on the way out. He said, how come you're in such a hurry all the time? He said, well, I'm running. I'm, I'm running after success. I'm running after money. I'm running after the next thing. I got I to gotta stay ahead of this. And the rabbi paused and said, You know, what if all those good things are actually trying to chase you? But you're running too fast to get any of them. That maybe in life, our margin has become so small that it's actually affecting the trajectory of our lives. Now, here's the pushback. Some of you are sitting there going, what does a pastor know about demands? You work two days a week. (laughs) To which I say, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. No. Listen, I would say this. Uh, Don't listen to me. Compare yourself to Jesus' demands. Because I think even if you're a CEO in this room and you are living at a pace that is unsustainable, unhealthy, and you don't know it yet, I want to say this to you. Do you think your demands are more than Jesus? 
Jesus had incredible relational demands on him. Incredible relational demands. He had a best friend, John. He had the three that were in his inner circle. He had his 12 disciples. He had his 72 followers. And then he had these massive crowds. And friends, every one of them wanted access to them. If you ever worked in an office space that you put up a sign that says, I'm studying, please do not disturb. Everyone thinks they're the exception. Oh, of course, that's for other people, but not for me because I have something pressing. And that's the same with the crowd, the same with the people around Jesus. They all want a piece of him. They're all the exception. Those demands were on him. It wasn't just those demands. He had demands on him in terms of the authorities. The legal authorities were always trying to entrap him and enslave him. They didn't want him around, so he's ducking them, moving here, moving there, confronting them. Then he had his critics. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others were always confronting him, always trying to embarrass him in front of others or trick him, uh, to trip him up. They were always on him 24-7. And then he had his family. Very interesting in the Gospels, his interactions with them. You ever feel like your family is, hmm. Jesus had a little bit of that going on too. And it wasn't just that, friends. Here's the tipper, because maybe you're saying, yeah, but I got a thousand employees. Jesus knew his whole life, whole life. He knew in John chapter six that one day his life would be demanded of him and that the sins of the entire world for all of history would be placed on his shoulders. That's enough to stress a guy out. And yet in the person of Jesus, which is incredible here, when we see Jesus in the story and we see him in the Gospels, there's no hurry. There's no pressure. There's no crowding. He always leaves room to love and he leaves room to provide. Listen, it's not that people weren't trying to hurry him. They were. Mary and Martha, listen, if you come earlier, Jesus, Lazarus wouldn't have died. You think of Jairus, whose daughter's near the deathbed, and he's trying to push Jesus. Come, Jesus, come. She's almost dead. Come, Jesus. And he will not be hurried. In fact, a woman touches the hem of his garment, and he stops and he talks to her, while this woman, it's critical, it's urgent, it's urgent, it's urgent. And Jesus pauses, and he creates margin so that he can respond to this woman's need. And we know the story. He actually raises this girl from the dead, because this is something incredible about Jesus. Just incredible about Jesus. There is always enough. Even if it doesn't look like enough to you. Look, in John chapter 6, it says this about the food that was produced from these five loaves and these two little fishes. It says that they all had as much as they needed. No. As much as they wanted. They all had enough to eat. They filled 12 baskets with the pieces that were left over. Think of it, five loaves and two, I, I love how Andrew says, two small fishes, as if it made a difference. Two bigger fishes gonna feed 10,000 people? We got a problem here, Houston. Something's not working here. But two, five fishes, two small, uh, two, two small fishes, five loaves of bread, and we can all say in the natural, can we say it's not enough? It's not enough. Yet these two small fishes represent our time and our resources as humans. Very finite. And maybe you hear a message like this and you're thinking about the fantastic challenges that are going on in your life and you're thinking, 
It's not enough. Here's what you do. When you try to satisfy the enough with your own ability, you'll surrender all of your margin to work harder. You're going to work harder. You're going to try. You're going to be more determined. I've got that in me too. I understand it. You think, man, if I work hard enough, I can push it over the top. Friends, you can't heal a broken relationship by working harder. It's not about how much energy you're putting into this. I think what's interesting when you see this narrative, and it's a trust thing, that when we give something to Jesus, our limited time, our limited abilities, our limited resources, he makes it more than enough. He makes it more than enough. That margin is critical for us to feel connected to God and to others in relationship. Guys, friends, the, 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 you know, so many of us are driven because we're looking for the good life. Friends, life with margin is not the good life. It is the best life. It is the best life because it's in the margin. You might not have everything that others have all the time, but it's only a life with margin where you can have a real relationship with God and you can have a real relationship with people that matter in your life. You, you want your life to matter. Don't miss what matters then. As a follower of Jesus, it's critical we create margin and space. That's why we do things like cathedral on June 24th, right in this room, 5.30 p.m. And we'll worship and pray together. Why? Because we need another event? Because the, the musicians like it? No. We do it because we need it. We need margin where we pause and we worship Jesus, not for what we're getting out of this, but for what we can do to connect with him. He's worthy of this. We need to pray. Why? Not because it, always, I'm, I monitor my prayers. If all my prayers are just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, something's wrong. Something's wrong. It's a conversation between me and God. It's where I get to connect with my father. So here, friends, when it comes to living margin, and let, let me talk to my type A friends in this room. The people are a little more driven. Now, if you're married to one, just give them a little elbow right now. You can do that. Just give them a little elbow right now. Hey, listen up in this moment. I, I, I get it. I, I, I'm recovering from that. I know this, though. When I felt threadbare, where I felt like I've had no emotional margin at all left, when I felt the demands, many of which I allowed in my life, you get what you allow. And all those things that were pressing in and demanding so much of me. And when you actually pause and make space and you listen to Jesus. So if you're a type A person, I challenge you this week, take 10 minutes and just turn the phone off, everything, and stop. And invite Jesus into that space. Because you might find him whispering things like this. Come to me, Jonathan. You that are weary and carrying a heavy burden. Jonathan, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, not the world's yoke on you that will demand everything of you. Take my yoke on you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle of heart and you will find rest for your soul. We need to create space to allow Jesus to speak to us. So the Bible doesn't leave us alone in this. Actually, it tells us how to create margin. I'm going to show you how to create margin, but I want you to know you don't pray about this. This is not something you pray about. Oh, God, someday let there be less demands on me. No, this is something you do. So how do we create margin? Well, the Bible says this. It's by remembering that we have limited time. So 
you might want to turn to someone next to you and say, hey, you have limited days. Only if you don't like them. Okay, limited time. The Bible says, teach us to number our days. Why does it tell us to do this? It doesn't tell us so we'd be depressed. But listen, if we know we have limited time, we'll make better decisions. Because this is true of me, likely it's true of you. When you have too much of something, you waste it, don't you? uh, Shelly and I will shop at a store that you buy things like in big bulk uh, locally here. (laughs) And uh, sometimes I'll I'll get a little over, uh, you know, I I, I like those dental picks that you, you, and you can buy enough for an army there. And when I do the math, it's cheaper to get it there. It's just way more than I need. And when I have this plethora of dental picks, I'm careless with them. I mean, I just go, oh, it bends a little. Oh, I'll get another one. I'll get another one. I go through a lot of them. But when I'm down to my last five, baby, I can stretch those. I mean, I am very careful not to bend it. I wash it. I'm careful with it. Why? Because I don't have that many. That's probably true of you too. Friends, it is sobering, but it's critical you remember that our lives have bookends. We have a beginning and we have an end. And that end, that's for God to determine. But it's critical because you need to make better decisions. You know, some of us, we're raising children and we act like they'll always be there. And, you know, as it should be, they grow up and, and sometimes you get lucky and they even move out. <laughs> Just joking. But you know, there, there are days even today even days in my life where I wish I could have one day back when they were little again. And when I was with them at that time, I was so taxed at work, and it's a demanding age, but it's a precious age, and you don't get that again. If you're married, you don't have unlimited days. And I'm not talking about when a marriage gets fractured and people go their separate. I'm just saying that someday, till death do us part, death will do you part. And I can't tell you how many people I've been with who've lost their significant partner in life and they wished for one more day. Just one more day with them. But they had many and we lived as if they were unlimited. If we acknowledge we have limited days, we'll make better decisions. But it doesn't just stop there to help us create margin. It's also remembering that we have enough time. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom for what? Wisdom to prioritize our days so we do not waste these days and live with regrets, that we don't live at frenetic paces, that we have no margin to love or enjoy the people around us or to connect with God. So let's do a little experiment here. We all have non-critical activities in our life, things that take time every day, right? Like what are some of the non-critical activities that you do that consume time daily? TV. Okay, there you go. Let's go TV, internet. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone ever gone down the YouTube rabbit hole? You just went to look at something, and it leads to something else, and they recommend something else, and you're just like, oh, that'd be interesting. And before you know it, where's that last hour gone? There's something called, I don't even know what it's called. Um, Hmm. I don't know. Facebook, something like that. Social media, Instagram, Twitter, whatever it might be that we consume a ton of time. What are some of the other things we do that consume time? I mean, some of us golf. 
Now, I know some of the guys will right away say, no, 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 that's a critical activity. That is critical. I'm a better version of me when I'm out in the golf course. Anything else? Netflix. If someone last night said Candy Crush or Crush Candy or some game. Uh, Netflix. This is where you get the binge watching, right? Yeah, that's a brand new phrase. I love that because it's uh, now, you know, when I was growing up, I'm going back to old times. When I was growing up, when you had a series you liked on TV, you had to wait seven days for the next show to come out. And then when it did, if you weren't around when it came out, you missed it. Now, you can stay up to an ungodly hour and get two seasons of your favorite show in and go back really charged and ready to work the next day. These are non-critical activities that consume precious margin in our lives. Now, we don't want to give them up. They're not bad things. Some of these activities add spice to life. They're enjoyable. They're really great in life. And our culture will say, prioritize these. But there are critical things. Some of the critical things are, if you have children, it is critical you spend time with them. Because it's not just, and this is the lie of our culture, oh, as long as it's quality time, uh, don't be Disney mom or dad. It is quantity. It is quantity. It is being present. And I know that some of us are very demanding. It's very difficult. We don't have flexibility at work. It's demanding a lot. Just, just remember, they're very important. You're, you're, if you're married, your spouse needs your time. If you go to school, You've got homework to do, unless, of course, you go to York University. That seems to be always on strike. That's a different issue for a different time. Then there's work. Work demands you show up. And you know what? We're to work. And as Christians, we should be some of the best workers. And then there's your spiritual life. And this is demands time because it requires community, church, It requires activity. And here's the thing. Our culture will prioritize this list, and yet this is the list we regret later in life. I've never met someone that regrets they didn't binge watch a bit more on Netflix. (laughs) If only I'd spent a little longer on Facebook. I have met countless people that have so many regrets because they didn't prioritize this list. Listen, if you're younger in this room, this list sounds like something that your parents should be paying attention to. Let me encourage you, even at a young age, pay attention to this list. For you, it might not be a spouse or children, but it's your parents. It's your brothers and sisters. It's family around you. It's close friends. They're they're on the critical list. And no one demonstrates this more than Jesus. And here's the thing, why we need wisdom is because we don't prioritize very well. And here's one question you, you, everyone should write down or take a picture of or something because you should ponder it this week. This will help you create margin in your life because you start by asking this question, what is most important and who is most important? What is most important and who is most important? So they get the first demands on my schedule. And then I have margin, and I can do some of this. And I can take time, but I'm not going to rob time 
from this list to get to that list. Friends, if you're here and you spend most of your time on this list, it's because you're probably trying to medicate something. You know, sometimes when things aren't working well with our spouse or children or school or work or even God, we'll go to this list so we don't have to think about this list. We'll go to this list, and instead of fixing what's on this list, we go to this list to escape this list. It's a trap. It is a trap. That is what will not help this get better. It will cause it to move further away. And that gap is not a healthy gap. It's not the one with something of margin in it. All of a sudden, that's how people become strangers living in the same house. That's how it all happens. Here's the thing, and I end with this. Jesus did this so, so well. See, Jesus prioritized his father over people. Always the father before people. See, he always knew that this source of peace, love, gentleness, kindness, uh, uh, long-suffering, peace, all of that comes from the father above. And so his spiritual connection was a priority, non-negotiable. We make it a negotiable, and so it doesn't even get in the margin sometimes. He made it essential. But he, he didn't stop there. It was very interesting. Jesus uh, prioritized his besties before his work. His best friends, his family, those closest to him. He always prioritized them. He spent time with the three, time with the 12, pouring into them. Relationships require time. Can you say that with me? Relationships require time. When you're driven and you have no margin, that was even hard to say because you start feeling guilt. But you got to remember, if you're a leader, you're ridiculously in charge of your own life. We get to design moving forward. Here's the next one. Jesus not only, he prioritized his health before the crowd physically. Now, you probably haven't heard a sermon on this, but someday someone should speak on this. I love the account in the Bible where Jesus took a vacation. He is under a lot of pressure, tons of demands on his life, and he goes to the Gentile region where it says in the text that no one knew him, and he told his followers, don't tell anyone I'm here. Why? Jesus needed a break. He needed to let his body recoup, his emotions come back up, his mental health, all of that stuff. Why? Because he was fully human. He was running at incredible paces. He needed to take a vacation. Friends, if Jesus needed to take a break... Some of you feel guilty taking breaks. Listen, sometimes your workplaces will make you feel guilty for taking a break. God, the creator who made all of life, commanded a break. I'd take God over my boss any day. I'm not, I know this is tricky in our culture and everything. All I'm saying is, whatever you need to do, you need to make, make sure you pause to take a break. And then the last one here. Jesus put his mind and his emotions before his success and ambition. I meet many people in life who surrender emotional health and sound-mindedness in terms of peace, and they're filled with anxiety and everything. Why? Because they're serving the God of ambition, and he's a cruel God. He'll demand everything, and when you pay it all, he won't be there to pick up the pieces. The people you should have been nurturing in the margin, they will be. Friends, it's within our power 
to create margin and live a life like Jesus intended us to do. You just have to decide. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, God, for your word and your example. And in the very beginning, you created the world and then you rested. <laughs> and you're the God who has no limits, not, not a single limit on you. You can bear any load and it'll never be, there will never be a capacity load on you because you can do anything. And yet you rest it, modeling to your creation that we are finite and limited and our days are numbered. And God, we want to be people of joy in this world and enjoying the world and creation you've made. And Lord, I know you look down on us and it's not with a tisk, tisk, tisk. You look down on us and you have compassion on this crowd. And I know you'd say to us today, sit down, rest. Because there's plenty of grass. And God, I pray for my friends today, two groups. I pray for the first, that maybe because of a stage in life they're in right now, they have so much time and they don't know what to do with it. And they're filling it with non-critical things. And they're lonely. And they're feeling the loss of some significance in life. Regardless of their age or stage, I pray, Lord, that Holy Spirit, you'd lead them to serving opportunities to people around them so that they can not only benefit your kingdom, but they can have that sense of assignment and that they're still needed and they're still wanted. And God, I pray for the other group that are maybe a larger group in this room that are feeling like they don't have any time and they're at their limit. Holy Spirit, would you empower them to help them to make some critical decisions with last week's message to create some boundaries, but also to intentionally, intentionally care for this space of margin in their life. That, Lord, they'd look at their load and they'd look at their limit and they'd take one step back from the edge, God. And that may require some fortitude of character to be able to say no to some things, some fortitude of character to saying yes to some quieter things, Lord, may we find our significance in you and crave you. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.